With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On this week's episode, we're talking to Eddie Kitsis and Adam Horowitz, the executive producers of ABC's Once Upon a Time. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Deborah Birnbaum, executive editor of TV at Variety. And I'm Mike Schneider, uh, editor-at-large at Variety and executive editor at IndieWire. And we're thrilled to welcome this week's guests. We've got Eddie Kitsitz and Adam Horowitz, the executive producers of Once Upon a Time. Hi, guys. Hi. How are you? Hey, thanks, thanks for having us. Eddie and Adam. How are you guys? We're pretty good. Thanks, thanks for uh, being here. Uh, it is our pleasure. Thanks so much for coming in. So six seasons in, how's it going? How do you keep the momentum going? Uh, you know, it, it's it's a train that once it's left the station, it just keeps going. So while you're doing it, the momentum's there, and it's. Uh, I think the schedules, the deadlines, and all that creates the adrenaline to 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 keep you going because it's uh, once a new season starts, you're off to the races until March or April. And I think you know, six seasons in, we still love it. So, um, you know, at the end of every season, we kind of take a little bit of time off, but then we come back for two weeks, we call it mini camp, and we start to plan the next season. So once the next season starts, you kind of start getting into it, and you're like, all right, this is this is fun, you know? This is a... And I think that just kind of propels us. Well, it seems like you guys have stumbled upon a strategy that works, which is coming up with these different volumes and, and sort of dividing seasons up and, and sort of focusing on different stories and coming back and, and in some ways keeping it fresh that way. Talk about that strategy and how you guys kind of came up with this idea of how you compartmentalize seasons and, and mini seasons. Well, I think the original idea for us was we wanted it to be, you know, when we pitched it, we, we said it's like a summer movie. We wanted it to be like a, you know, for everyone, family, like a summer movie, like Pirates of the Caribbean. So for us, it was always every year had to be a new adventure while you further these characters. Yeah. And then after season two, we... Um we had a new different. We had a new air schedule where we we uh, the network split us up so that we would run ten or eleven episodes in the fall and then ten or eleven in the spring or twelve or whatever it was to even out to the twenty two, and that really started to lend itself to this kind of you know two different chapters in a season uh, storytelling, which was a lot of fun and it was really cool to kind of kind of build to a big crescendo in one story and then to start kind of fresh again. But now as we've gotten deeper and deeper into the run of the show, we're sort of trying to play with different ways of mixing that up so that it doesn't feel predictable that like a villain will come in and then by the end of episode 11, they're, they're dispensed with. So now it's more about it's how do you kind of tell distinct stories in the spring and in the fall, but create kind of one big story for the whole year and kind of mini arcs throughout. And that's that's one of the challenges. And it's it goes to keeping the momentum that you talked about before. It's That's one of the things that keeps it exciting is each year 
it's a kind of a different show and and the excitement and kind of figuring out what that different show is is what makes it so much fun to write yeah i think i think one of the hardest parts of television especially broadcast when you do 22 or 23 years the sustain you know and how do you keep it fresh and how do you keep it because we're not we're serialized so to speak so it's not like every week's a case of the week you know every week we have to kind of further a new story and and I think that you know that is the the most challenging part. But when you when you do it, it feels the most rewarding. Like you know, we're on a episode one hundred like we're twenty um, something right now, and we're like, how did that happen? But it's it, uh, it, the thing with it is, is it's like you you when you pitch a pilot or you you know you have an idea for a show, you you hope it'll go this long, but. You, you, you obviously can never know, and you never know what will work, but you hope that you can kind of create something where there is an ability to have a sustain, where you can keep telling stories with these characters, you know, three, four, five, six years later. And with Once Upon a Time, you know, we've been we've been very lucky with having an amazing cast and incredible writers, incredible crew and all that that's really brought so much to it that's allowed us to each year have something new we want to explore with these characters. And, and it ultimately, I think, comes down to that, that, like, if your characters you love and there's something to really dig into, you can keep finding new ways to go at it. Well, certainly to that point, you've got this great group of core characters, but you've also introduced this family of Disney characters. How do you decide which characters you're going to bring into the show? How do you make that decision? Um, it, you know, each year we kind of look at what the theme is. So, uh, you know, last year we, we this year for the, we did the Land of Untold Stories, but really what we wanted to use was... Uh, go into the world of Jekyll and Hyde, but really use that as a way, as a metaphor to to ask the evil queen, can you split the darkness from yourself? Um, so once we wanted to split uh, the evil queen and, and, and ask, can you actually divide yourself from good and bad? We thought, well, the perfect story is Jekyll and Hyde. Um, for Aladdin, you know, this year, I think... We... we um We'd always wanted to do Aladdin and Jasmine on the show, but we hadn't yet figured out the way it fit into the storytelling on the show. And it occurred to us this year as we entered the sixth season that Emma, our, our heroine, she she spent you know all these years being a hero and saving the world and doing all these really amazing things because she's been you know um, decreed the savior. So the idea then hit us, well, what if there was another savior? And what if that was Aladdin? And then you had this idea started to present to, it, to us, which was, well... Is there a toll that happens the more heroism you do? What could that mean? And then Aladdin became the reflection on that. So it became our way into it, which was, oh, okay, we can tell the Aladdin and Jasmine story, but have our own spin on it and have it relate to our characters. And, and you know, uh, Aladdin kind of fit because, as he says, you know, he was the street rat who ran around and he was a thief. And Emma, you know, our heroine started out as a runaway. So for us, we, th we saw very similar parallels, and that became the time to to time yeah. to do it and and sometimes you know we we when we started we we always wanted storybrook to be like Springfield and Simpsons. We loved Disco Stew. You saw him once a season, but you knew Disco Stew. And it was time to go to Mo. And so for us, we always wanted to have this populated with Cinderella and Grumpy, but the Mad Hatter. And, you know, someday hopefully we'll get to Mr. Toad. Well, it's like this season, for example, like, you know, as we get deeper into the season, Ian Bailey as Pinocchio shows up again, you know, for a couple episodes. And he's kind of pops in and out over the years, but it's fun to just have these characters you can kind of pull out and hopefully create a world that feels very lived. 
Well, what's what's interesting too, in, in sort of what you're dealing with is, uh, you know, obviously you're a show that's produced by Disney, and a lot of these characters have been mined by Disney, but they're also a lot of them are just fairy tale characters that have been around for centuries. So, how do you kind of walk that line, and when a character is more Disney-fied, and when it's much more just a traditional See, fairy it's, tale? It's character? funny because it's like we created this show we could not have been more naive like we went into it the idea started with you know the evil queen and what if she was so frustrated that she she could never win she cast this curse and it, it became about these characters but it was never thought about as a disney show it was never thought like oh we, we just know it's public Disney's. domain right we, were, we, we didn't were, realize grumpy actually was disney jiminy cricket was disney yeah we actually came up with the idea many years ago we were working on felicity at the wb way back then and, and when that show ended we uh, you we know. tried to pitch this, and we were very young writers, and we had an ensemble cast with dwarves and fairies and wolves and kids, and everybody said, no, thank you. And then after Lost, they were like, do you have any big ensemble crazy ideas? <laughs> and we're like, absolutely we do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were fortunate that ABC bought it because we then started to realize, oh, you can't just say Jiminy Cricket. That's actually owned. And so, so Peter Pan. And- yeah, to your question, so then after we, we did sell and we started to develop the pie, we had a, a meeting, which we didn't realize was going to actually be probably the most important meeting we had for the show, which was with brand management at Disney. And we, we were so naive. This was our, our first, you know, pilot and, and all, you know, it was going and all this. And it, like we go in to meet with these people. They couldn't have been nicer. They were great. We talked about the show. We talked about what we did. We were going to do with these characters. And ultimately, kind of our pitch and the way we've handled it over the years is we, we, we call it like our Disney cul-de-sac. Like, you drive in here with these characters. Characters, you can play around with them. We try not to dent them too bad, and then they come right back out. And the Disney canon can exist as it always has. But in the once upon a time world, we can kind of twist things and do things a little bit differently. And some characters, you know, like Ariel, we felt like um, keep Ariel, Ariel. Um, but for Peter Pan, we made him a villain because we felt that anyone who wants to be 14 for the rest of their life, like, that's a horrible age. So they had to be a villain. Like, who wants to be a 14-year-old kid? Um, and they've given us the freedom to kind of, you know, either, you know, make Peter Pan a villain or bring in Frozen and let Elsa be Elsa. And that's been amazing. And it is, it's kind of on a case-by-case basis. You sort of feel it out for both what's correct for the storytelling and what's correct for the character. Like in the Elsa case... It wound up really being a story about Elsa and her friendship with Emma and how they were both sort of dealing with feeling different and for because of their powers and magic and all that. But it did not feel right to go, oh, make Elsa a villain or, you know, or give her a big romance story. Like, you just got to kind of feel out what's correct for the characters. And as Eddie said, like when we did Peter Pan, it was like, oh, a 14-year-old boy with all that. Like, And there's been so many different right. retellings of Peter Pan that you want to make it fresh. Right. Well, and Elsa came right after the movie. I mean, that was a, that was a unique situation for you guys. There was a lot of interest in, in sort of how you were going to do uh, Frozen. And, and the potential of a whole new audience of uh, you know young people in particular tuning in. So so talk about the the pressure that was uh, what, that was there. Well, we 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 had talks uh, with some people, and and we loved Frozen. We have kids. We were just obsessed with it, and it and it naturally Elsa was Emma to us. Like they were the same arc, and Emma just got her magic, and we thought this would be perfect. 
Um, and when Disney said, okay, you know, and we did the finale and the very last image of season three was Elsa with the dress the next, it was like all of a sudden the next day, every every news outlet wanted to talk to us. And we said, oh God, what have we done? We had no idea. I mean, we knew obviously Frozen was the biggest thing in the world at that point, but we had no idea like kind of like the microscope of attention that would, that it would come into our yeah, cul-de-sac. Right. So uh, the pressure was immense and you, it was actually more pressure than I felt the pilot because you realize now you've been given this very, very, you know, uh, thing that everyone loved. And so you don't want to upset kids. You don't want to upset adults. You certainly don't want to upset the franchise. And so for us, I, we, we, we just, you know, it was like, you had to, it was like all the stress, all the stress. And then when we started the year, you just had to put it out and say, we're, we're all in and what happens and, happens. And, you know, and we went and we, we pitched um, the filmmakers behind Frozen and we, we met with them and they were incredibly gracious. They came and sat in our writer's room and talked to the writers all about the characters and all the different things that went into how they became what they were in the movie and what kind of things they would or wouldn't do. And that was really helpful. And, you know, and I think that hopefully when we pitched what we wanted to do, they felt comfortable with what that would be and we hopefully developed Because we trust. didn't want it to be Frozen takes over the show. We wanted it to be how these characters inform ours, which is what it was. But of course, before that everyone was like oh they're frozen and it's a tie-in and this and that and it's like well actually not not really disney is not usually you know they don't want han solo to come on once you know <laughs> Although like, great, these are right? very <laughs> lo- beloved properties it's not like it's an easy thing like we get a call one day. that's what everyone always asks they think like we just get a call like a pneumatic tube comes in and we're like all right this week they want tinkerbell let's go and it's not it's the opposite it's we come up with the ideas and we have to let franchise know what we're doing are there any characters from the Disney archive that you've wanted to do that you've been turned down? Uh, no, you know what? No. no. I mean, I'd say the, the the trickiest one actually, oddly, was Captain Hook, which uh, he originally we wanted him in the first season of the show, but there was some rights issues um, that were very complicated with uh, the whole Peter Pan story, and that got sorted out during season one, so we were able to bring him in season two. But as far as saying, oh, we want to use this person and being told no or... or Yeah, they've been really incredibly supportive and when they realized we wanted to do our own spin on it, that was, um, they were, they loved that because then then we could be the cul-de-sac. And as like Disney fans, like it's funny, like we didn't approach the show as like Disney fans, we wanted to do a Disney show. We approached the show as like thinking about it, the kind of stories we wanted to tell and all these stories we grew up loving. So that's been what's been the driving force behind the show, but, which is the which, storytelling. Yeah. And, and that these stories are kind of collectively the things we all have grown up with. I think, you know, when we did the show in two, 2010 was when we pitched it, it was, was really, you know, an, an uncertain time. And uh, for us, we just felt like everything in the landscape was bleak. And it was all about, you know, the anti-hero who does horrible things and you love him, which is honestly, I love that. But we wanted to do something hopeful. We wanted to do something that like Sundays at eight, you could watch and feel good about it, like in a Frank Capra way. Um, And we decided to just go the exact opposite, which, you know, has its own pros and cons. But that's what it really started was we just felt like there needed to be a show that when you went there, you felt better at the end, the way you do when you watch these movies like Willy Wonka or... Or some of these. So talk about that. Given that the show is on at eight o'clock on Sundays, you know what kind of themes can you do? How dark can you get? Given that you do have a co-viewing audience, it, it's it's funny. It's like you can. What we've discovered is you can be dark, and we we, we don't mind being dark. We like being dark. But I mean, the w- cast. You know, the queen cast the curse by crushing her own father's heart. But it's there's a difference 
between dark and bleak. And that's the line we've always tried to walk on the show, which is like characters can do terrible things. They can they, they can kill people and or have horrible things happen to them. But as long as there's hope in the show and that we're getting to a place of hope that things can get better, that that kind of buys us that. It's bleakness it's it's that's what we we never really get into or we don't want to get into because the show was really you know emma wanted to find her family and the evil queen even though people didn't realize it wanted to find her happiness and a redemption and that was you know one of the interesting things is is with uh, the evil queen and rumpelstiltskin who robert carlisle plays is they have just done horrible dark things and yet the audience is like they they root for them to change. They root for them to find their happiness because I think that's something that relates to all of us. So what we've tried to do with the the quote unquote villain characters on the show is always show the where they began. And early on in the series, we had a character say, "Evil isn't born; it's made." And that that's what we've always explored: is how do these characters get to this place, and hopefully have the audience relate to it, so that they can see the choices they make. These characters and relate to, "Oh, I might have done the same thing if I had magic powers." And then all of a sudden, they start to really root for these characters to redeem themselves. So, and then conversely, what we do is with our quote-unquote heroes is try to find the darkness in them and the, the bad choices they've made, so that there aren't really strictly speaking heroes and villains in the show. I imagine you guys have some really interesting conversations in the writer's room about some of these issues, just issues of being human and, and yeah. sort of the good and evil, of course, but some of the, the age-old questions that we all grapple with through life, you're, you're dealing with this with these characters on a weekly basis. So. Yeah, I think that's what fairy tales really do best, is they take really complicated life uh, issues and, and they distill it down to that universal you know, theme. And, and for us, it, it is. It's, is magic a shortcut is a theme, because everyone, you know, uh, you know, uh, as we had the Mad Hatter say, everyone, you know, uh, everyone wants a magical solution, but no one believes in magic. And so that's kind of, you know, you're always, we always said this was a show for believers, but the world is so cynical. And so we do, as writers, try to say, well, what's the metaphor this week? What are we really trying to get at? It is not about, oh, I need this magical thing, or I want to destroy someone's happiness. It is why the character wants to do that. And at the center of the show, you, you, you have this kind of family, this crazy extended family of fairy tale characters, but you have Emma Swan, who's the daughter of Snow White and Prince Charming, who had a who was sent off when she was a baby and didn't know them when she grew up, who had a very tough life, who has been sort of trying to fight to find some meaning in her life. And then you have the evil queen, who's a character who felt like just put upon by society and always defeated and always like had all these bad breaks. Both the characters are kind of looking for hope, and they're both looking for a way to find their happiness. So that I think that at the center of the show, you, you, you have flawed characters dealing with adversity, but who are clinging to this idea of hope. And I think that that's what we always kind of go back to, which is if you can find the way to, to, yeah. to infuse the hope into even the darkest situations, like there, there's, a, there's an uplift to the show. Th- thematically, I think we had this idea since 2002, and we had a really, you know, no one bought it, but then we had a, which was great because we had a writer's block. We didn't know how to do it. And we did this episode of Lost. One of our favorites was Hurley finds a VW bus and starts it. And he starts it, and Charlie thought he was going to die. And he says, if we make it, we make it. And they both roll down the hill. You know, this Three Dog Night song comes up. And that feeling of hope, which became what we said in the pilot, was the clock tick moment. That's what we wanted the show to be. You wanted these characters to feel like life sucked and then watch them go, maybe it's not so bad. 
Yeah, yeah. Lost was uh, did a great job with that through the years, where you'd have some really dark moments, but then some of these really just life affirming, hopeful moments. Uh, you know, the, the time that they played golf. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. there, there was a lot of moments like that. So I definitely can see that. Uh, you know, sort of inspiring you guys uh, with with what you do with Wands. What did you guys learn from being in the Lost Writers Room that you think has informed you when you work on this show? I mean, everything from everything to everything. Yeah, I mean, Damon and Carlton were incredible mentors in in trying to prepare us for what is basically a job you can't prepare for, which is being a showrunner. Um, And over the years at Lost, in addition to learning so much about storytelling and writing and all that, we learned so much about the nuts and bolts of production. I mean, the Lost Writers Room was a room where you had to come in ready to play. You know, there, there were no weak links in that room, and you had to be ready. And because of that, it just made your brain, you know, uh, story brain. You just learned, we learned so much from Damon and Carlton. But then they would do things like, you know, in addition to editing and all those things, they would bring us in on calls, calls that we didn't understand why they were doing. And they're like, one day you're going to need to know this stuff. Um, and and it's funny because the going from staff writer to showrunner, even though we started as staff writers, even though we spent 12 years on staff, you you and we couldn't have been more prepared than we were, you're still not prepared. And to this day, once or twice a year, if not more, we'll reach out to Damon and Carlton and be like, here's a situation, we need your advice. Um, and, and I think that you know the thing with Lost also did is it told us how to tell stories like this. How do you use genre as a metaphor? How do you do the character first? Because the interesting thing about Lost is everyone was like, I want everything answered. I want everything answered. But most things were answered. It was about the journey, not the end. And it's really hard to get people, you know, to understand that. And once for us was always about the journey. Lost was always about the journey because that's why you watch a show. You go to that town. You want to be in it. You know, you, you, that's why I love Game of Thrones. I'm not watching it just to see who has the queen. I'm watching it to see how they, I mean, the, the crown, how they get to well, it. And you know, what's funny too, is that, you know, people want answers, but yet they don't want the journey to end. Yeah. So it's a catch 22. Well, that's, that's the tricky line to walk, which is to keep an audience engaged, to keep asking questions without frustrating them, providing them, you know, enough answers and closures along, closure along the way that, that they feel satisfied, but also leaving enough that they're, they're they're, they're curious about but but I think one of the biggest lessons out of Lost to that point and to the larger point is is about character which was on Lost we learned I think that if you can make the characters really relatable and really understandable and really grounded you can go anywhere with them you can have smoke monsters you can you know have, have time travel button, yeah. and, and all that stuff because you're with the characters and we took that lesson to heart and took it to Once Upon a Time to be like we can have an evil queen, and and I and I remember, you know, from the the very first day with Lana Priya when she was playing the part, talking to her about the character, and saying this character is about pain. She has a personal pain that she's gone through that's making her do these things. She's not just evil. And once we all kind of collectively created this character and grounded grounded her that way, it helped the audience to really relate to that character. And, and that's been the key because you know fairies and dwarves and dragons and all that. It's fun to look at, but if you're not invested in the humanity behind it, you're not going to watch. I think another thing I'm sure you guys learned a lot from your Lost experience was uh, relating with the fans. And, you know, you guys on Lost had a rabid fan base, and now on Once you have a rabid fan base. Talk a little bit about that, your relationship with the fans. I mean, sometimes they want something that you guys don't necessarily, you know, are ready to give them. And sometimes, you know... It's interesting because there is, when we started, Twitter was new. 
So I always wonder what would have happened season one of Lost where we ended it not showing you the hatch in today's world. Um, like literally, like, you know, you, you were trying to write a book and yet someone's commenting on every chapter. It's like nobody reads The Hunger Games and chapter three, they go, screw this. They didn't tell me who won. <laughs> but like on TV, it's like, um, I've watched two hours and I don't know how this ends, the whole series. And you're like... So, so for fans, it's both inspiring and, um, you know, uh, the thing with the Lost and the thing with the Once fan base is they're so dedicated that they, they form these communities. And you started as a fan yourself. So, the, so it's, 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 um, it's inspiring to us as writers because you're seeing these people really connect. Whether they hate you or love you, they're still talking about something that you, you know, you created. And, and you're hearing the way it affects their lives, which I find very inspiring. Yeah. I think it's cool. There's nothing, you know, really more inspiring about making the show than meeting the fans. And it's like when we do Comic-Con or events like that and you see thousands of people, like, dressed as the characters and, you know, and, and asking questions and quoting lines of dialogue. It's amazing because that's how Eddie and I started. We were fans. We loved television and film and we loved these things so much that it made us want to create and make them. And that's really the, the greatest part about it. I mean, there's nothing I love more than when I, you know, meet someone who, you know, started watching the show when they're 12 and they're now in college and saying they're studying writing and it's like that's awesome and and the fans are so they're so passionate about the show it's like it's not something you can ever you know ask for you could just sort of hope it happens and it's and i think there's a you know on some level they relate to different characters for different reasons the characters are in their homes every week so there's this intimate connection that's created and the key is the and the key for us is to be inspired by it but not let it dictate the writing because, you know, um, everyone wants, if we listen to everyone, the show would be a giant mess because people want different characters dead and alive and with other people. And so you have to remain true to your vision, even though you have all these voices in your head. Um, and uh, that's, that's the hardest part, I think, is because you, you, at the end of the day, when the show is done, you know, we have to look back and say, we did what we wanted, not like, oh my God, season six, we started to listen to Regina Mills, you know, 800 and Chewbacca 20. And, I, you know? I, lo- I love going on social media and going on Twitter and seeing what the fans say, but it's, 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 a, it's this distinction between hearing the fans and listening to them. Like, it's like you, you want to hear and, and get a sense of how they're feeling and, and what, they're, what they're thinking about the show, but you can't take commands. You can't, you know, you can't, because there would be Creativity literally, like it, it, it's not, you know, it's not a democracy. It is, you know, we and the other writers have to trust our instincts about the stories that we're telling with, you know, and while understanding that we can't just be in a bubble either, we have to kind of understand that we're making this for an audience and it's a really fine line to walk. But there's nothing better than seeing someone dressed as a character like you thought of. I mean, yeah. like that is, that is the best, be it, you know, and, and that's, that's what's been amazing. I'm sure. So in this day and age, showrunning has gotten ever more complicated. How do the two of you balance your workload? Do you have different strengths? Do you divide up the job between the two of you? We, we do it the least efficient way possible, which is we do everything Adam together. Adam and I met in college. So we came out here together. We started writing together. Our first scripts were together. So we've learned no other way. So we don't, you know, I mean, we're not really a divide and conquer. We're a do everything. I think, you know, showrunning is just... It is just enormous because you are dealing with everything. You go from, you know, when you're a staff writer, your job is writing, editing, and and, and, and being on set, and it's your episode. When you're the showrunner, it's everything, including, like, what promos are we in this week? You know, you're, you're, you're really managing a whole 
thing and you and you have to rely upon you know the people that it's a collaborative medium and you really understand I think that one of the things that's helped us is being a partnership starting as writing partners we're naturally collaborative we like to think and hope but because of that like when you run a show in our experience you just you need to find great people and find great people can do their job really well and hopefully create a vision that everybody can kind of follow but it's physically impossible to do everything yourself you know and um so we have great writers we have incredible editors incredible actors and all that and it's it's finding the way to maximize your collaboration with yeah i mean like you know for once upon a time you know i i think a lot of its success is the actors I mean, that cast, you just look at Ginny as Snow White or Robert as Rumpel or Lana, and you're just, you're just like, okay, I want to be with them every week. And they elevate, and then you start to see things they do, and it's this weave between everyone. And that's, you know, that's the greatest thing about season six is now you've got enough episodes where there's this, like, everyone can kind of, you know, help each other out. So there's days where Adam, uh, you know, I might be weak on one thing in the morning, and Adam becomes stronger in that, and then we switch. And that's how it is, is you just kind of always trying to you know help out and you guys expanded your empire of course with dead of summer Mm -hmm, Uh, so talk about juggling uh you know multiple shows and uh is this uh you know part of the 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 larger empire it was uh, it was it was a lot of fun to do dead of summer and it was a um you know it was a show that was an idea we'd had for a number of years and we had always designed it wanting to do like a 10 episode show uh, and we kind of scheduled it so most of it fell over the hiatus between season five and six although there was overlap um, that was our vacation yeah right. some vacation yeah, yeah you know for i mean look it was we call it our midlife crisis show like we it was set in the summer of 89 in a summer camp um and you know we wanted to kind of uh you know <laughs> the the make a show that that was inspired by things that inspired us which was oddly late night cable you know, like when you would have a sleepover and you would, uh, you know, you'd, you'd stay up at night, your parents were asleep and you started to see like, you know, it wasn't 16 Candles, it was Valley Girl, it was River's Edge, it was Heather's, it was, you know, horror movies that weren't, you know, Friday the 13th. And so we were like, oh, we want to, we want to take that, but mix it with kind of our, our, our growing up. You know, we said it was John Hughes meets John Carpenter. Um, but it really was kind of like uh, it, it was, and it was like another muscle we wanted to stretch, and it was, uh, it was, you know, it was a lot of, it was just, it was a lot of fun to do, and it also, while very different from once, shared, I think, that idea of dark, not bleak. Like it, it got pretty dark, and it got, you know, whole, but a great, you know, it was one of my, our, my favorite twists we've done. Um, you know, it's interesting straight to series because you kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're going. And so there's no R and D. Um, and so, so you're kind of finding it like network on the way, but I feel like it was, you know, it it was like Adam said, it was, it wasn't really much as much as expanding a huge empire as much as it was, you know, when we find things we love and we can't say no to, we want to do them. Well, it was also an opportunity to do uh, a smaller cable yeah. show, 10 episodes, sort of, uh, you know, move away from that big broadcast 22 yeah. model that you guys have been so focused on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was in that respect, like, the storytelling approach was very different to once because it was 10 episodes. We had a very carefully mapped out, close-ended story. Because if the show does continue, 
it's meant as an anthology with kind of a different thing around this summer camp in a different year. So we designed it to end completely and have a kind of a big twist toward the we end. We want to do a sustain on this. Right. One. We, we want to do a reset every year. So it really was meant almost like a, a novella that, you know, would, would end. So that was a lot of fun to do. And it was it was really challenging because we learned a lot, I think, doing it. Our approach in starting it was to try to do a kind of a slow burn setup of some things that then really kind of built toward the end. And it's, you know, it's tough these days to do a slow burn at, at anything. <laughs> unless you're, unless you can watch them all at once. Yeah. Impossible. So we've seen a lot of showrunners writing to an end date. Is that something that you have in mind at once? Or we just want to see it going as long as it can. Well, I think, um, you know, for us, there is an end date for, uh, you know, stories and characters, but I do also think it's a show, as we said, we reinvent every year. So at a certain point, we do know that these characters need an, a closure, you know, um, and so we have that in mind. Um, and when it is, we'll, we'll let you know first. <laughs> it also depends on availability of, of actors eventually. And, and because, you know, again, like you guys mentioned, you could keep introducing different forever stories forever. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and I think one of our, our hopes with the show is to be able to provide, like, you know, satisfying closures for these different characters. And if we some stay or we hand off to others or stuff that like we think the world of Once Upon a Time in success can continue for well, a while. Well, you know, for us, I think one of the. Uh, Inspirations was a Wonderful World of Disney, where Sunday at eight, and to us that is that is a lot of what this is. So you know, at a certain point, Emma needs her happy ending or not happy ending or her closure, but that doesn't mean you know we can't uh, the town can't continue. Absolutely. So you came out of one of the best writers' rooms in history, but would you, given the chance, is there any other writers' room you would have wanted to work in? Oh my goodness! Absolutely. I mean, this this might sound crazy given the shows we've done, but the LA Law Writers Room, I like. I loved that show, and that was like, I, I, you know, I was pretty young, but it was the first. Like, it was such a character-based show, even with like all the procedural elements, and there was a serialized nature to it, and it was just like that's what really I think hooked me on television, like like serialized weekly storytelling. Um, you know, Buffy. I wish I was on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Absolutely. I think that's a great staff or, you know, I mean, that would be fantastic. I mean, I'd also have liked to have been on the Seinfeld staff just to sit there and watch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're I, I don't know what I could contribute I like to. to be, <laughs> I would have liked to be on Sid Caesar. I would have liked to work with uh, Mel, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Right. And yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. This is all fantasy. Yeah. So get, get a yeah, time machine exactly. and go back. And most of those guys are still alive. Yes, That's they the are. Other. Yeah, so. I've, I've, yeah, I would, I would, that would have been amazing. I should have added a caveat. Time travel is absolutely eligible. Oh, okay, yeah. Sid Caesar, Sid Caesar show of shows. Definitely. Well, thank you guys so much for coming in. Thanks for having that us. That was fantastic. And um, can't wait to see what's in store. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another great guest. We've got Betsy Beers, partner in Shondaland, and the executive producer of Grey's, Scandal, and How to Get Away with Murder. This has been Remote Controlled, only on Variety. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.